Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jarden's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I'm joined by Mike Bird. He's one of Australia's top 100 young entrepreneurs, a current CEO and co-founder, a board member of an online business, and also running now, the business we're going to talk about today at Urban. This is a company I came across in my research of listed stocks, REA and Domain. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Thanks, Elise. Stoked to be on the pod. So let's turn it over to you. Where do we start in that long list of things that I read out there? I might just start <laughs> maybe <laughs> with Urban. That's your latest venture. Talk me through, through what is that? Yeah, so look, we bought the company about four and a half years ago. It was an online information platform for property development. It was called Urban Melbourne um, back then. And we kind of saw an opportunity where with real estate and domain in the established market, there's a listing for every property available for sale at any one time. Now, oddly, because of the commercial model and the way that both REA and domain work, there isn't a listing for every development every new residential property development. And we saw that as an opportunity for us to be able to you know, empower buyers by showing them everything that's available. And so when we purchased it, we had about 20,000 users. We've kind of grown that out about 10x to a couple of hundred thousand users now. And the reason that people use the platform is because is they want to see every off-the-plan property available for sale. And on the customer side, the property developers... You know, we're the only place that guarantees performance outcomes for their marketing investment. So if you're a property developer, you know, they fix the cost, as many costs as they can. So whether it's the build cost is usually fixed, you know, the sales cost in terms of a commission is fixed. But for some reason, the marketing part is just they throw the money at, you know, various places and hope for the best. And we think that that's pretty weird considering how they typically operate their companies. <laughs> And so we kind of have been evolving initially on a pay-per-lead-based model, but we really think the future for us and the model we're rolling and scaling now where the developer can just pay us for referring a lead that converts into a sale. So kind of variableizing the cost of sale like they do for the rest of the project. Yeah. So you found an interesting gap in the market. And how have you gone about the pricing strategy? Have you gone towards the subscription model or have you more so tended towards you know different packages? Talk me through that part. Our first business, Social Garden, we started with in the social media space where we saw some of our property development customers were testing running Facebook ads, but weren't able to kind of figure out how to get leads from the platform. And so we kind of created this new model where we could extract leads from Facebook. We thought it made sense to charge them on a pay-per-lead style basis. And when we stacked it up against the two incumbent portals, it was much cheaper. And over time, as we kind of got bigger and bigger with our first business, we wanted to not be you know, so reliant on those platforms. That's why we acquired the business and evolved it into we own the asset and we sell them the leads that way. So to answer your question, it's pay per lead on a subscription. So they get a certain volume of leads each month. We also support them with content marketing using our kind of AI platform that we've built on top of ChatGPT. And as said, now we're kind of moving into the pay per sale, which is what we think is how portals should be paid. Ultimately, we're there to do a job and it's not about eyeballs, it's about ROI for the developer. Fantastic. It's interesting that backdrop that you had in your first business venture there and how that's come to play about uh, to the advantage of the website that you have now. Let's talk about the geographic footprint. Is it national? Are there strengths in some markets? You know, broadly, it was a national business, I guess, is the headline. We Mm -hmm. are stronger in Victoria and Queensland. 
New South Wales is a slightly different dynamic. Obviously, it's Domain's backyard and then REA is kind of also there as well. So we found Sydney slightly harder, but from a consumer standpoint, it's broadly representative of like where the population is and where people are moving to. But on the customer side, you know, we're kind of stronger. Yeah, WA, Victoria, Queensland, and then we're kind of growing quite quickly now into the New South Wales market. But that was kind of deliberately the one that we left till last, knowing that there were some stronger competitors in the space. <laughs> yeah. And do you think this business model can be replicated globally? On the consumer side, you know, it's it's pretty tricky to kind of get all of the content and aggregate all the listings and manage all of that because, you know, in the apartment market, a lot can change in just a period of, you know, a couple of months. So on average, we see about 5,000 status changes across the listings that we have on our platform every month. And so we've had to build, you know, a couple of dozen different software platforms and data partnerships and things in order to keep track of the craziness of, you know, the goings on in the off the plan market. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about the industry? Let's talk about the target market and what have you ever thought about the size of the market? How's it growing? What are some of the drivers of its growth? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we look at REA as a competitor. Obviously, they're the market leader. They've, they've got $130 million in revenue in this business. But I think that business could be two or three times the size for them. Given it kind of represents only 10 to 15% of their revenue, I think, they have an opportunity to reduce the risk profile of the marketing investment for the developers. <laughs> and I think if they were to do that, you know, there's a big upside there for them. So in terms of the market size, there's about, you know, call it three, $400 million a year spent on advertising. We think if advertising converted into a pay-per-sale model and was broadly adopted across the market, it would be a lot bigger than that. Because, you know, developers want to pay for assurance, really. So I suppose a, a good comparison actually is, you know, a large part of the market is split into two types of models of how developers sell. So one part is the traditional kind of what's called retail advertising, where the property developer is paid various marketing providers. They pay Urban, you know, on a paper lead. They use other, other portals, Facebook and Google and so forth. And then they pay the agent a fixed price. Traditionally, it's about 50% of all sales go through that model. But more recently, it's actually a higher percentage because the other kind of model is what's called the channel. So the difference with that one is that that's mostly focused on selling to investors and they sell through accountants and seminar companies and things like that, where the developer typically pays five to 6% of the total value of the property to those companies. And that's actually the model that really dominates most of Asia and India and yeah. so forth. Interesting. And so it's there reflecting on that, that there is an opportunity, not just it's about market share, it's about the adoption of that from the developers? So I suppose one key growth area for both the portal, like the green and red portal, and, and also for us is, you know, 50% of the total sales and new development go through retail advertising and retail sales campaigns. But there's this whole other bucket, which represents another 50% of the sales where the developers pay between 5 and 6% to um, seminar groups, accountants who refer their customers and so forth. And the developers pay that massive premium. And that represents you know, half of the entire market. And so right now, the portals, including us, don't really participate in that space. So what we're trying to do and from an innovation and commercial strategy standpoint is provide developers with the, you know, the thing they like, which is the assurance, but reduce the cost of that. So, you know, charging more like two to two and a half percent as opposed to five or six percent. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I know we've just mentioned about it some of the competitors, I think, because that's the angle that I came and started digging around the business. <laughs> but, I mean, who else is in the market? Who are you running head-to-head with? 
outside of those guys, I think it's Facebook and Google are kind of have really mm. grabbed a decent chunk of the market. And I think, you know, they're real competitors and they're also partners. So I think they're the main ones, you know, from a like straight up new development specialist portal space. We're quite far ahead, I think, of everyone else. So we're mostly focused on competing against the portals. And then we're kind of frenemies with Facebook and Google. So do you think it's a winner-takes-all or is it going to be a healthy oligopoly? How do you see this industry planning out? You know, I think in the established market, it's a winner-takes-most pretty much everywhere in the world. However, I think in the new development market, there's going to be more multi-tenanting where, you know, if you're a vendor selling your established house, you want to access the largest pool of buyers. And so often that results in only one platform being used because you're only trying to sell one house. However, if you're a large-scale developer and you need to sell 500 apartments, you need to kind of use a range of different platforms. And so, you know, for the development space, I think it's much more common for developers to advertise on multiple platforms relative to, you know, a consumer selling one property. Mm, Makes sense. And how easy is it to replicate your business? What are those barriers to entry? You know, marketplaces have great network effects. It's always had the chicken or the egg problem in terms of like, do you have the customers first, or like the listings first, or do you have the buyers first? And that can be quite a tricky and expensive exercise to go through. If you were launching urban.com.au 10 years ago, you would need tens and tens of millions of dollars of capital and a lot of brand advertising. And that's obviously why even to today, REA Group is, you know, majority owned by News Corp. Domain have, you know, a large share of their business owned by Nine. And it's because when those businesses launched, those kind of brand investments were what were making or breaking those companies. I think for us, we've been fortunate that we've been able to bootstrap our overall group of businesses. And we've been able to grow the traffic to such an extent through kind of technical digital marketing, through search engine optimization and building what's called growth loops into the product where we're able to get one user to help us acquire more users and so forth. So it took us a long time to learn how to do those things after, you know, running Social Garden. And so we were able to kind of apply that deep technical skill to kind of get past the chicken or the egg problem. Um, And then once you kind of get past that part, it's a lot easier to defend relative to get there. Mm. It's the benefit of being a serial entrepreneur, which is what we like to see across some of our businesses. <laughs> I always cringe when I hear the entrepreneur stuff. Eh? It's, um, but yeah, I guess uh, I, we just like building things and you know, trying to do things differently and trying some fun when we're doing it. I'll use the word builder next time. Compatible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, let's talk to some of the economics of um, the business that you've built here. What's the churn like of your customers? We've got super low churn because the developers you know, they like the whole accountability piece. And, but the way that we kind of think about churn, to clarify, is we look at it at a developer and a project marketer kind of level. Project marketer is what mm-hmm. we call like a sales agency and new development. However, we've got churn built into the company, unfortunately. So, you know, once a building is sold out, they no longer require our services. So we kind of focus on heavily on our relationship with the developers because most of them, you know, like a Mervac, for instance, they'll constantly have a supply of new projects coming through. So we kind of look at churn on a developer basis and the churn's yeah, super low for that. Hmm. Now, a lot of the data that we get in here has a lot of challenges in the outlook from an economic standpoint around the construction industry. I'm sure you can see some of the headlines and some of the cost pressure that's coming forward. Yeah. What are you seeing on the ground in your space and how are you thinking about this in the challenges that your business might face? Yeah, in general, 
I think the media like overgeneralize the property market in terms of its markets within markets. So for example, right now, mm-hmm. there's huge issues in Queensland with the building industry. And the biggest problem for most yeah. is getting a builder. The Olympics makes it more complicated because a lot of the contractors and builders and so forth, you know, they'll take the government work over the private development sector, particularly when times are uncertain like they are now. And also the amount of work coming to support the Olympics is just humongous. So, and also it's kind of got the added kind of pressure of the fact there was so much interstate migration to Queensland during COVID. <laughs> and so, you know, I think Queensland's a tough market and it's at a different part of the cycle. And really the main thing is the projects that are getting off the ground are those that have got great relationships with the builders. So, you know, there's one group, for example, called Consolidated Properties, where they have their founder, Don O'Rourke, has a great relationship with Scott Hutchinson, who's a big builder there. So those kind of old school relationships really matter when the market's tough. And so, you know, that's kind of the Queensland market, slightly different in Melbourne, where we have less of the issues with the builders actually here on a relative basis. But at the end of the day, you know, the development market can't operate if people can't build a property for what an established equivalent is being sold for. And really, until the interest rates normalize, new normalize anyway, to a rate which enables the price growth to add some margin and for developers to bring projects to market and and not be trying to sell something off the plan that's more expensive than paying something that's established you know we're going to continue to have a lot of supply related issues but you know we're seeing the green shoots obviously yesterday they paused the rates again so i'm hopeful that you know we start to see the rates come down but history would suggest when building prices go up they don't typically go down they just plateau for a while mm. So I think in order to kind of address the supply side related issues, it's really about interest rates, unlocking kind of price growth and establish, which unlocks the ability for people to bring projects to market and make them profitable. Yeah. For what it's worth, we've still got one more rate hike in the uh, yeah. forecast for the end of the year. However, then we do have next year it coming down. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of the stabilisation being more important, really, I think, than with the level, just because it enables you to be able to know your borrowing capacity, to be able to, you know, find your budget. I think that that hopefully drives a bit of the momentum in the market. Honestly, it's like the, the biggest service they could do for us now, it feels like, is if we are going to have one more rate rise and I'm a long way from being an economist <laughs> but like it seems to me it is also seems to be on the cards you know I wish I would just kind of hurry up and get it done and then be like all right that's us because the biggest thing we see yeah. in, in terms of like we survey and collect a huge amount of data from buyers that are thinking mm. about buying off the plan property as you'd imagine and the main thing is uncertainty that's driving it forward because mm-hmm. a big chunk of our market as well is people downsizing from you know, um, yeah. an expensive kind of established home where their family may have moved out and they're looking to right size. We're trying to retire the term downsizing because, you know, you've got to right size for the lifestyle. But those people are more concerned actually about the market they're selling their existing house into. And they don't necessarily require a whole bunch of debt to buy their next property. But they're kind of sitting on the sidelines at the moment where if they're going to put a deposit down on a house that's going to be built in four years, I'd prefer to hold on to their property. So it just creates this kind of general sense of uncertainty yeah. that's kind of paralyzing the market. But I think in terms of, you know, the government is talking a lot about resolving the kind of housing affordability and supply mm-hmm. issues. And I just don't have a great deal of faith in them and their ability <laughs> to get this resolved. I think the reality is, is that that kind of fundamental, you know, economics of you can't build a property for what you can buy an established property for is the main limiting factor and why projects aren't coming to market right now. 
Yeah, let's hope we find some uh, results there because it is going to be a challenge looking forward. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, pushing up against time. Let's talk about strategies for growth. What do you think is the next, say, year, three-year, five-year plan for the business? Yeah, so we're kind of, we became profitable earlier this year, like despite the market just being a bit crazy at the moment, we've still been getting really strong revenue growth. Um, we're also getting like growth and signups and stuff. So it's been good. We, our original strategy, you know, we had like a five point kind of plan, which one of the things was to get the market leadership position for the specialist off the plan space, which fortunately we've been able to capture that. Then we were focused on capturing, you know, driving lead generation growth where the cash return cycle is much better than on the sales side um, and to use that to drive us to profitability. So we, you know, we're default alive, not default needing to tip money in from our other businesses. And so thankfully we got there. Uh, but really the way that we're going to get to a multi-hundred million dollar business and from a revenue standpoint, and we think the the gross margins we're beginning to see over that profitability mark are similar to ARIA. We think the majority of that growth is going to come through the pay-per-sale model because it enables us to reduce the leap of faith for a property developer even when we are offering them a guaranteed price per lead that we send them, there's still a leap of faith where there's, you know, the first question they'll ask is, you know, what's the quality of the leads? And fortunately, once most people have tried us now, and that's kind of enabling us to continue growing. But ultimately, when we've been going to market with the paper sale model, we haven't had anyone say no. And so we think that the market getting effective the whole market on that model is what we need to do. And we're kind of rapidly growing that and it's been easier than I even optimistically hope to do that. So really the big growth driver needs to be consumer growth, you know, because unlike with real estate and domain, there's like a little nuance in the market where, for example, if those guys, each of them doubled their traffic tomorrow, there's non-direct correlation with their traffic and their revenue. Whereas for Mm. us, there is. So on the pay per Mm. sale model, if we double or triple or quadruple our traffic, it means we're sending, you know, double, triple, quadruple the leads and the flow through from a conversion and revenue is effectively like directly related to that. And that kind of opens up a bunch of opportunities for us from different sources of traffic where we can get, from, you know, from where we are now to a million or two million users a month. And so long as we have that kind of captive audience on the B2B side of the industry, really, it's just a tap that we need to focus on growing and, and we can buy traffic to supplement that. And that's how we're going to build the business that we're out to build. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to turn it over to you. We've spoken a lot about the business here. You're very well versed in building businesses with several other successful ones. You also sit on a number of boards. So, uh, Mike, tell me, can you give me a quick recap of some of the things that you've learned for those investors that are wanting to understand, you know, what should we be looking within an early business from a management perspective? Yeah, look, I think... um I've done some work with private equity companies in the past, kind of looking at deals for them, which I actually find really useful getting exposure to them and learning from them because there are a lot of smart people in that space. And I think one of the things I always took from them and across kind of various groups is that most businesses usually boil down to two things at the end of the day. It's really product and distribution, particularly in the technology sector. You know, and what I find often with early stage founders and in lots of businesses that are kind of, you know, subscale or whatever, is that they often very product focused, but really the thing that ends up making or breaking them is distribution. 
And so what I try to focus on with them is really thinking through, in the same way we did with Urban, where as a result of having a listing for every development in Australia to deliver the consumer value proposition, and then we had a product-led growth model on the B2B side. So every developer in Australia uses our products. Not all of them pay, but all of them use it. And so it makes it a lot easier from a biz dev and distribution standpoint when you're kind of, you know, taking someone who's already received some value from the product and then converting them into a paid customer. And so we try to do that as often as possible with any company that we're involved in or advising or looking through, you know, I think one example in the public market space that kind of, I always reflect on is, you know, when Slack first came along and obviously it's owned by Salesforce now, but they had an amazing growth loop in their business, which enabled them to kind of grow super fast when they were invited in order to use Slack you know, obviously the business messaging tool to use it, you need to invite other people to it. So it's got a network effect. Back then, I thought it was just an amazing company and it is, but watching Microsoft Teams completely decimate Slack in such a short period of time is one of the best examples to me of the power of distribution. And I think from a local market perspective here in Australia and the smaller cap space, one example that I've seen, which I was super impressed with was the acquisition of the CRM business out of domain a couple of years ago mm-hmm. with Simon Baker, um, who is the ex-CEO of REA, and Joe Hanna, who was the CEO of PropTech Group. They bought the domain CRM business for, I believe, about $20 million. And effectively, they had most of the agents in the market all using the tool, i.e. the distribution platform to those customers, and did a really effective job of effectively swapping them out into a better, more modern type of product. And they got acquired for about 90 mil earlier in the year. And so, you know, to turn 20 million into 90 million in 24 months, you know, I think they would have definitely not been able to do that without effectively acquiring the distribution platform from Domain. And so, you know, for us in our future kind of MA stuff, we're looking at some deals at the moment. We always think through does this company have a product problem or a distribution problem? And often the product problem is easier to solve and the distribution side of things is a lot trickier often. So we try to look at businesses that we can buy that have strong distribution baked into it, that we can improve the product and increase the revenue per customer and so forth. So I think there are tons of opportunities in most categories in the distribution side that can be you know, couple with a great product to create heaps of shareholder value. Well, thank you once again, Mike Bird from Urban for joining us today. I appreciate your time and I look forward to seeing the journey. Thanks, Elise. Appreciate it.